wonderful time of worship already, these uh, great songs we've sung and the baptism. We appreciate all of you being here with us this morning and adding to our time together and our, our fellowship. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here this morning. We've got VBS week coming up. Uh, over 800 people are going to be here this coming. We have no idea where we're going to put everybody, but it's going to be awesome. And uh, we just want to thank Connie Goodson and her team so much for all the work they've done. Uh, there are a lot of uh, children that are coming from uh, areas around our church, and uh, we need to, to pray that God will do a great work in their lives. The, uh, the theme this year is Treasure Island. It's kind of pirate and the parrots and things. So uh, some of the people on the staff uh, asked me if I'd tell a parrot joke today since I like those. So I'll tell one that I, I like, one of my favorite ones for uh, kids. You guys can remember this one, I hope. Uh, there's this uh, parrot, and he walks into this restaurant, and uh, he, he tells the guy that comes and waits on him, he, he asks him, do you have any grapes? And the guy said, no, we don't have any grapes. He says, besides, he said, we don't serve parrots anyway. Get out of here. So the parrot comes in the next day and says, do you have any grapes? And the guy said, no, I told you yesterday, we don't have any grapes. We don't serve parrots. Get out of here. So he comes in a third day and asks the guy, do you have any grapes? The guy says, no. And he says, if you come in here again tomorrow, I'm going to take a nail. and I'm going to nail your bill to this table. So the parrot leaves. He, he shows up the next day again and comes in and guy says, what do you want? And he says, do you have any nails? And the guy said, no, I don't have any nails. And he says, do you have any grapes? <laughs> okay, I got a little bit of a laugh. I like that. Somebody told me another one after church I liked in there. Well, let's, uh, let's commit VBS, though, and these who have been baptized to the Lord before we begin this morning. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for these wonderful songs we've sung here this morning. We thank you that we're no longer slaves to sin. Uh, that we're, we're children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for these who've been baptized this morning and the ones who'll be baptized at our other services. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you'll help them to walk in that newness of life that you've given to them in Jesus Christ and help us to be an encouragement to them. Father, we pray for VBS this week. We pray for a, a special filling for all those who are working uh, by the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, we know that there'll be many children here outside of our church who don't know Christ. And Father, I pray that you can invade their hearts and lives this week and bring them to faith. I pray you'll change the trajectory of their life, and I'll pray that you'll change the trajectory this week of entire families as little children come to know Jesus as their Savior. Lord, we pray for our kids who go here who know you, that they'd be encouraged, that they would fall more in love with Christ and with his church. And so we just call upon you, Lord, to do great things this week here at Faith Bible Church in the lives of the workers and the children who are gathered here. So we commit this week, Lord, to your grace. May your hand of blessing be upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in an exposition right now of the book of Nehemiah. If you're visiting with us, we, we've titled this, uh, this series, Rebuilding Your Future. And we've made our way to Nehemiah 7. If you want to turn there with me in uh, the book of Nehemiah, we finished uh, chapter 6 last time. And uh, the, the city walls have now been built. Remember, it took 52 days, and the walls of the city of Jerusalem that had been destroyed uh, during the time of the coming of the Babylonians has now been rebuilt. And chapter 7, verse 1 tells us now the gates have even been hung. Uh, but the job isn't finished yet because if it was, the book of Nehemiah would just end right here. Now, the city's built. Uh, the walls are, have been built. The city's been built. The gates have been hung. It's all been done. We'd have a period here, and this would be the end of the book. But there's still another great work that needs to be done. The book of Nehemiah uh, divides, you remember, into a couple of sections. I told you all when we started, the first six chapters are about rebuilding the walls or rebuilding the place. 
But chapter 7 to 13 are about reviving the people. It's uh, the beginning chapters, rebuilding the city, the latter chapters, reviving or reforming the people. So chapter 7 here is kind of the, the transitional chapter of the book. It's kind of the, the hinge of the book between these two great works of God of rebuilding the city and reviving uh, the people. That's the next work that we're going to begin to read about through the rest of the book. Now, if you just let your eyes kind of wander down the page in Nehemiah 7, there's 73 verses here of primarily or mostly unpronounceable names, just bulging with a list of names. And you'll be glad that I'm not going to read all these names and butcher all of them here in your presence this morning. But it's 250 names of otherwise unknown people. And so one phase of the work, the rebuilding of the city, is merging into another phase, phase two of the project, to revive the people. Now, Nehemiah 7, we could call this chapter 7 kind of the seventh inning stretch of the book of Nehemiah. If you've ever been to a baseball game or seen one on television, you know, everybody stands up and stretches, and nowadays they all sing, uh, you know, take me out to the ball game, and you get ready for those final innings. Well, this chapter, chapter 7, sets the stage for the rest of the book and kind of gets us ready uh, for the final innings here um, of the book of Nehemiah. Let me read the first five verses. We'll, we'll look at all the chapter. I say that. We're just going to look at kind of three main parts of it. But let me read these first five verses. Now, it came about when the wall was rebuilt and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed that I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards... For the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, the peoples to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first in which I found the following record. Well, so reads God's inspired word this morning. Most of you have heard the name Matthew Henry. Uh, Matthew's, Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible really was the, the classic English-speaking commentary on the Bible for 300 years. But a lot of people don't know about his father was named Philip Henry. He was also a pastor, and he met a, a young woman named Catherine Matthews, and he sought her hand in marriage. Uh, but the problem is her father and a lot of the townspeople didn't want her to marry Philip Henry, at least for some period of time. Her, her father and the people kept saying he's a stranger and we don't know where he comes from. But Catherine's reply to them is classic. She said, it is true, I don't know where he comes from, but I know where he's going and I'd like to go with him. Uh, Philip Henry's vision was clear and Catherine knew that if a man knows where he's going, it doesn't matter uh, where he comes from. And Nehemiah in this book is a man who knows where he's going. Nehemiah has come to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, but also to rebuild its citizens. Uh, Nehemiah didn't just come to rebuild the city, but to revive the citizens. He's not just interested in the place, but he's also interested in the people who live there. 
And he knew that life and structure needed to be breathed into uh, this new community. So the walls were there for the protection and the prosperity of the people, but what really mattered was the, the state and the condition of the people's hearts. And of course, the same thing is true today. So before he goes any further to revive the people and reform the people, Nehemiah realizes there's a few basic things that need to be set into place, kind of some groundwork that needs to be laid to revive the people. So what I want to do this morning is look at three things that Nehemiah does before he proceeds any further. Uh, Three things I think also that we must do in our lives and in our ministry here at Faith Bible Church Uh, before we go further. So these are three steps or three building blocks for effective biblical ministry. The first one is enlisting leadership. We see this in the first three verses. Notice he says in verse 1, it came about when the wall was built. Remember, it took 52 days. I'd set up the doors. So the doors and the gates are there. The gatekeepers, the singers, and Levites were appointed. So they get some gatekeepers to control access to the city, right, for uh, protection. Uh, They have singers. There's 18 references in the book of Nehemiah to singers, eight references to giving thanks to the Lord. So this speaks of putting in place the priority of worship because the greatest priority was to ensure that God was at the heart of the personal, the local, and the national life of these people. And of course, God wanted them to have a passionate worship, and so did Nehemiah, and God wants that for us as well. And then he appoints Levites. They were like the teachers or the pastors of that day, and so he wants the people to have regular teaching from the Scriptures. So he makes sure that leadership is in place to protect and to to lead and to teach the people. But then in verse 2, like all good leaders, Nehemiah knows he can't do the job alone. So one of his first official acts is to appoint two key assistants to help him. And we could say they're kind of like the mayor and the chief of police here maybe to to help administrate the affairs of the city. And notice he mentions one of them is Hanani, my brother. Remember all the way back at the beginning of the book, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in Persia. He's in the city of Susa. And remember he runs across his brother Hanani who's just come from Jerusalem and tells him about how the city's broken down. And that's when God places that burden on Nehemiah's heart to go back and rebuild the city. So we meet his brother again here, Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, probably a a military leader of some kind. So he appoints these two men to help him to be kind of the day-to-day administration team and help running the affairs of the city. So Nehemiah delegates responsibility, and I think all of us know that delegation is part of wise leadership. You need people to help share and shoulder the burden because you can't do everything yourself. And of course, I think all of us know, I hope we know, that whether it's a marriage or a family here in this church, a business, um, a city, a state, a nation, Nothing can rise above the level of its leadership. Everything rises and falls with leadership. Again, it's true in your marriage, your family, your home, wherever it is. And Nehemiah here looks for two key qualities in these leaders that he appoints. He wants them to be faithful and to fear God. Or to put it another way, he wants them to be reliable and be reverent. Notice what he says, a faithful man who feared God more than many. 
Now, one of the things we should look for in leaders is people that are just faithful and reliable and dependable. Someone who says the greatest ability is dependability. If you've ever been in anything where you depend on people, that's certainly true. And so I think it's a great question for all of us to ask ourselves, am I a reliable, dependable, faithful person in the things that I commit to do? One of the greatest joys for me over the almost 27 years we've been here at Faith Bible Church is to see people in our church take on ministries. And they're faithful, reliable, dependable people. And when they take that ministry, you never think about it again. It's done. And you don't know what a blessing that is. I mean, those of you in leadership and other areas know that when, that when someone takes something over and you know that thing is done, it's taken care of, what a blessing that is. And I've seen it time and time and time again here in our church. And I praise God for all the reliable, dependable workers we have here. There's people who've taken ministries on and literally done them in a faithful, reliable way for decades here at Faith Bible Church. And and we deeply appreciate that. And that's the way we all need to be in our ministries here at this church and wherever else God places us. The, The second thing Nehemiah looks for here, though, is men who fear God. Remember back in chapter 5 and verse 9, he, he kind of castigates the, the wealthy who were taking advantage of those who didn't have as much, and he said they didn't fear God. And then down in chapter 5 and verse 15, he said, the reason I live the way I do is because of the fear of God. So Nehemiah fears God, and he's looking for other men who fear God as well. And to fear God means that nobody and nothing matters more to me than God. In fact, uh, it's an absolute adoring awe of God is what the fear of God means. Steve Lawson puts it like this. He says, a proper fear of God begins when we realize that our lives are in His hands and that He is free to do with us as He pleases. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. Your life is in the hand of God and God is free to do with you as He pleases. All our days... All our circumstances, all our successes, all our trials are under God's control. And He is guiding our lives according to His eternal plan. That's where it really starts to to realize who God is and to come underneath Him with an adoring uh, awe and and an absolute awe of who He is. Many of you have heard the name William Gladstone. He was a great Christian. He was an accomplished British statesman. He served uh, four terms as prime minister of of England in uh, the late 1800s. And uh, once when he was at Christ College, he was talking with some students there about all the the wonderful things that had happened during his lifetime uh, in Great Britain there in England. Of course, he was there during really the heyday of uh, of British rule during the Victorian era. But his comments kind of reflected the bold optimism that prevailed in that day. But one of the students asked him this, Sir, are we to understand that you have no anxieties about the future? Are there no adverse signs? And the experienced statesman thought for a moment, and he answered carefully and said this, Yes, there is one thing that frightens me. The fear of God seems to be dying out in the minds of men. So the one thing he was afraid of is that the fear of God was dying out in the minds of men. And if that was true back in his day, how much more true is it today that the fear of God is is dying out uh, in the minds of men? I love what verse 2 says there at the end. He feared God more than many. (laughs) 
In other words, these men are a cut above the rest. They, they fear God in an uncommon measure. And it's my, my prayer for all of us here that what's said of these two men will be able to be said of us that we are faithful and that we fear God more than many. Because God is looking for faithful, God-fearing men and women uh, to serve Him. Let me just say that's what we want in our leaders here at Faith Bible Church. Above everything else, if you're to say, what are two traits you want to see? We want to see people that are faithful, that are dependable, that are reliable, and people who fear God. Those are two traits that must be present if you're going to be a faithful leader. And it needs to happen in our homes and our families as well. Now, not all of us are called to be Nehemiahs. Not all of us are called to be Hananis or Hananias. Uh, Some of us are singers. Some of us are gatekeepers. Some of us are servants. Some of us are teachers. We all have our place to fill. and We all need to work with our God-given leaders to help get the the work of God accomplished here in this place. Now, the second foundational step or building block for God's community is establishing citizenship. Establishing citizenship. Notice in verse 4, it says, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. So Nehemiah has built the city, but the city needs to be repopulated. I mean, a city is not of much use if nobody lives there. So Nehemiah dreams here of a vibrant city, of a prosperous, bustling city where the Jewish people will gather as a covenant community uh, to worship Yahweh. That was the ultimate goal, was to have this city, which is the place where God had placed His name as the center and the heart of worship for the Jewish people. At this time, most commentators say that probably 10% of the people lived in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, when we get to chapter 11, they're going to draw lots, and one out of 10 families are going to have to move into the city and make the sacrifice to do that because they need to repopulate the city. But you'll notice here in verse 5, while Nehemiah is pondering what to do, he says in verse 5, then God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and so on. Now, I love this because Nehemiah experiences divine guidance. He's open to direction from the Lord in his life. And the same must be true for you and me. We need our our hearts and our senses to be in tune with the promptings of the Lord, where God can prompt us and move us and put things in our hearts uh, to guide us. So Nehemiah discerned the Lord's prompting in his heart. Now, why was he able to do that? Because Nehemiah practiced the presence of God in his life. God was never far from Nehemiah's thoughts. If you read this book, and we're making our way through it, we've commented several times there are 12 prayers in this book. And some of these prayers of Nehemiah, we've just called them text message prayers. They're just a sentence or a few words. Nehemiah lived in such a a conscious sense of God's presence that he could just simply say something to God on on a moment's notice, if you will. It was like he was always in fellowship and conscious of God's presence. He's constantly thinking about the Lord and living his life in God's presence. Now, I thought about this a lot this week, and I just started thinking in my own mind, how often do I really think about the Lord during a day? And I started just kind of reminding myself of it. And really, I don't, I don't think an hour goes by most of the time when in some measure or some way I, I don't think about the Lord. To pray, 
to just call upon His name, just to see something beautiful and think of that and to thank God for it. But, but to not let an hour go by or maybe not let 30 minutes go by without thinking of the Lord because we think about who we love. And if we love the Lord, we're going to be thinking about Him often. He's never going to be far from our thoughts. Many of you uh, have read books by David McCullough. He's called America's Biographer. Um, he wrote a great biography of John Adams. One that he wrote is called Truman. It's uh, the life of uh, President Harry Truman. And in the, the book, he tells a story about when Harry Truman uh, became president, he worried about losing touch with everyday common Americans. He was afraid he'd just kind of be sequestered away in the White House and would lose his touch with everyday people. So oftentimes he would go out on walks, and those were simpler times back then when the president can kind of go walk around like anyone else. And one evening he decided to take a walk out to the Memorial Bridge on the Potomac River. As he was walking along there, he became curious about the mechanism that, that raised and lowered the bridge. So he walked across a catwalk and went down under that area and came upon uh, the bridge tender there. And the, the man was just sitting there eating his evening supper out of a tin bucket. And uh, the man showed absolutely no surprise when the best-known, most powerful man in the world walked in and sat down there next to him. And here's the way David McCullough tells it. He said the man swallowed his food, wiped his mouth, smiled, and said, You know, Mr. President, I was just thinking about you. <laughs> now, according to, to Truman's biographer, Truman said that was the greatest greeting he ever had received in his life, and he never forgot it. The guy says, you know what, Mr. President? I was just thinking about you. And you think about that. The Lord adores it when he finds us thinking about him and conscious of his presence. In fact, I thought of this this week. Wouldn't it be wonderful Someday when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to, to catch his bride away to heaven, when we see him for the first time and he comes to catch us away, for to look in his face and say, you know what, Jesus, I was just thinking about you. That's the way it should be in our lives. And when we spend time in his presence, he can guide us and he can prompt us. He can do that easily. He can put things into our hearts. So, Draw near to the Lord every day and draw near to the Lord all day long. And God can work in your life and in my life like he did in Nehemiah's life. Now, what did God put in Nehemiah's heart? God put into Nehemiah's heart to go and find the archives of all the genealogy of the people who'd returned 94 years earlier. You remember the Jewish people had gone into captivity. The Babylonians had taken them there. They'd been there 70 years. And in 538 B.C., a man named Zerubbabel led the first return of the Jews back to the land, back to Judah, to rebuild the temple. About 50,000 of them came. So they returned from Persian-controlled Babylon. The Persians had now overtaken the Babylonians, and they came under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And if you go back to, Nehemiah, to uh, Ezra chapter 2, Ezra chapter 2 parallels the long list of names that we have here in, in, in Nehemiah chapter 7. So he gathers the, the nobles and the people together, and he finds all these old archives, kind of blows the dust off all these old scrolls of all the people who'd come back 94 years earlier. And he begins to list their names here. Now, one thing I want to mention here, if you read Nehemiah 7, his list of the names and the number of people that returned, some of those are different than the list in Ezra chapter 2. 
You say, well, if the Bible's inspired by God, why are there differences? Well, there's two ways to explain this. One is some people think Ezra's list was a list of all the people that intended to come and who set out on the journey. But Nehemiah's list then later is a list of the people who actually made it. So some people may have dropped out at the last minute. Some people may have joined the group at the last minute. So that could account for some of the differences in these lists. Another difference is, or another answer is just copyist error. Again, you imagine scribes, what they did in that day. You have a stylus and you're sitting there writing all day long. And you get in these long lists of names and numbers. It'd be very easy to transpose those and maybe make a small copyist error for those things to creep in. So we don't need to allow things like this to, to undermine our confidence in the Bible. There are good explanations for these, but uh, we know that in the uh, original manuscripts that are written that the Bible is uh, without error. Now, if you go down and, and look in chapter 7, uh, verses 8 through 25, he lists the people by families or clans. Then in verses 26 to 37, he lists them according to the villages they come from. Then beginning in verse 39 and following, he lists all the temple personnel. Now you say, well, now why is this long list here? If it's the same as the list in Ezra chapter 2, why not just say ditto? Or just put a, a footnote down here that says, you know, see Ezra chapter 2. But, but I think it's here because he wants to remind the people in his generation of the people in the previous generation who sacrificed to leave what was going on in Babylon, and a lot of the people were doing well there, to go far away and come back to Judah to rebuild the temple. So I think he, he's recalling the sacrifice of these people and listing their names as a way to call his generation to sacrifice. Also, I think just the list of names emphasizes that these people are counted by God because they count to God. God cares about people. People are important to God, and he lists their names here one by one. But I think also here, one of the reasons this list is here is it prepares the way for the repopulation of Jerusalem. The city's been, be, been built, and Nehemiah's goal now is to have this a, a vibrant, thriving city. So he has to establish who can live in the city of Jerusalem. And to live in the city of Jerusalem, they have to be Jewish people. They have to be true people of God. So he goes back to these old archives to find out who originally came to establish Jewish heritage and Jewish genealogy. When we get over again to chapter 11, as I mentioned earlier, uh, they're going to draw lots and 10% of the people have to move into the city, but only purebred Jews can live there. Uh, Jerusalem had to be a pure city. They had to be a holy people. So to live in Jerusalem, you had to have Jewish blood coursing through your veins because Jerusalem wasn't just any old city. I mean, it's the city of God on earth. It was the center of God's covenant community. It was the place where the Messiah was going to come, and he dies outside the city, and he's coming back there again someday. So verses 6 through 60 are all the people who could prove their genealogy. But notice down in verse 61, he lists some names, and he said, but they could not show their father's houses or their descendants whether they were from Israel. So there were some people who couldn't show they were purebred Jews, if you will. 
they were not able to show that their families truly descended from Israel, they're not allowed to live in the city of Jerusalem. And then he goes on and talks about the priests and that the roles of the priesthood are purified. So some men were functioning as priests who couldn't establish their connection with Aaron, the family of Aaron. Look at verse 64. It says, they searched among their ancestral registration, but it could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. So some were ruled in and some were ruled out. Some belonged and some didn't belong. So the pressing question was, did they have a bloodline to Israel or in the case of the priests, all the way back to Aaron? So proof of the purity of their ancestry was essential. Now you say, well, how in the world does that apply to us today? Well, I see an application here to the church. I think we can apply this to the church corporately. Now, most of you know that the universal church of Jesus Christ is all people, wherever they are in the world, who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the church of Jesus Christ on the earth that's present right now. It's all believers. We call that the universal church. But local churches, like here at Faith Bible Church, these are local, visible expressions of the universal church, where we gather to to celebrate ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper and the the preaching of, of the Word of God. So Faith Bible Church here is a local, visible expression of the universal church. And it's incumbent upon the leaders of local assemblies of believers to make sure that the people who are members of their churches and who are serving there are members of the family of God, uh, that they're true members of the church. It's incumbent upon the leaders here at this church and other local churches to make sure our members have a solid profession of faith in Jesus Christ, that they're members of God's family. So when someone wants to be a member at Faith Bible Church, one of our elders, we meet with them and we hear their testimony and their profession of faith. Now, we can't look into anyone's heart and know exactly where they stand with the Lord, but we do our best to make sure that those who are made part of the the covenant community of God here at Faith Bible Church, the outward expression of that, that they have a, a testimony of faith in Jesus. Look, here at Faith Bible Church, our church is open for all people to come. We want people to come here who don't know Christ. But to identify as a member, you have to have a bloodline, if you will, that goes back to Jesus. You have to be related to him and be in God's family. I was reading in a local publication here in Oklahoma City last week an ad for a church in downtown Oklahoma City. And um, it said, open arms, open minds, diverse, inclusive. I think we know what some of that probably means nowadays, but we certainly want to be inclusive for whoever wants to come. But we're exclusive of who can be a member and who can serve because Christianity by definition is exclusive. I mean, no man can come to the Father but by me. Jesus said in Matthew 7, there's a a, a narrow gate and a narrow path that leads to life. Few there be who find it. The the gate is broad and the path is broad that leads to destruction. The apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4 says, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Look, the church of Jesus Christ is a a holy, sacred place that the Bible tells us this local assembly of believers is indwelled by the Spirit of God. 
And so we want to make sure that people who are members here and who are serving here have a true profession of faith and are members of God's family. Now, the good news is if you're on the outside, God wants you on the inside. You can come in by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. God wants you in His family, and so do we. I see a second application here of just individually for us. You need to know that you belong to God. You need to know that you have a spiritual pedigree. We're talking here in Nehemiah about the earthly city of Jerusalem in 400 B.C., but the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city, is the ultimate destination for all those who know the Lord. And you need to be able to trace your spiritual lineage to someday enter the gates of the new Jerusalem of the heavenly city. Last night I was uh, watching the news before I went to bed, and there was a program that came on. It was one of these things, uh, a commercial came on like Ancestry.com. It was another one. I don't know the name of it, but kind of those deals where you think you spit on a piece of cotton or something and stick it in a deal and send it off and they send back and tell you where you're from, right? All the, where all your, your relatives come from. And I thought about that last night in light of our passage. A lot of people are interested in their uh, physical lineage and uh, their family lineage, but they're not interested in their spiritual genealogy. I mean, I want you to hear this this morning. I know we know this at this church, but if you had to prove your spiritual genealogy to get into God's heavenly city, could you do it? Every one of us here are headed for one of two destinies, either heaven or hell. And only those who belong to God's family are going to be able to enter heaven. And you enter heaven by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior, by recognizing I'm a sinner I believe Jesus Christ is the Savior who died for me and rose again. And I trust Him now and take Him to be my Savior. I love the words of John 1.12, so simple. But as many as received Him, that is Jesus, as many as received Jesus, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. They're born of God, born into God's family. You know, God is keeping a list. God has an archive in heaven. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And I think the most sobering verse in the Bible is Revelation 20, verse 15, where it says there that God searches through the book of life. If anyone's name is not found there, they're cast into the lake of fire. It's God's birth registry, if you will. It's a record of all of those who've been born twice, who've been born into God's family. Look, you, you all probably heard this before. If you're only born once, you're going to die twice. You die physically, and you're going to die spiritually and eternally. But if you're born twice, that is born physically and born again spiritually, you're only going to die once. That is, you'll only die physically. And if the rapture happens during our lifetime, we won't even die once, which is what I'm looking for. But God knows those who are His, and God has a record of those who've been born once, but then born again into his family spiritually. And when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you leave behind your old bloodline of Adam, and you are joined to the royal bloodline of Jesus Christ. You remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent his disciples out with power. 
They go out and do all these miracles. They come back, and they're all excited, and they tell Jesus, they say, man, we've done great miracles in your name. We've, we've healed the sick and, and, and raised the dead. And they said, even Satan and the demons are subject to us. What did Jesus say to his disciples? Don't rejoice in that, but rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. So that's, that's the main thing you want to rejoice in, that your name is in God's registry. It's in God's book in heaven. So only those related to Jesus spiritually are going to be able to live someday in that heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. So look, before you can go any further in your life, your ministry, we need leadership. We need to establish citizenship. But finally, we want to encourage worship. And just a couple of minutes here in verses 70 to 72. Look, leadership and citizenship are critical, but they're nothing without worship. That's the ultimate goal that Nehemiah has for the city. And in verses 70 to 72, he harks back to 94 years earlier to all the financial gifts that that previous generation had given to rebuild the temple and to do God's work there. And I bring this up here because before you can go further in ministry, what do you have to have? Adequate financial support, right? We can't go forward without it. And so he lists here from 94 years earlier the gifts that had been given. By the way, one of the things that tells me is God didn't forget who gave and he didn't forget what they gave. God knew. And the sad word here in verse 70 and 71 is the word some. And some from among the heads of the father's households gave. Verse 71, and some of the heads of the father's households gave. It ought to say all, but it just says some. Some gave. And they gave a lot. Uh, a thousand drachmas is 20 pounds of gold. 20,000 drachmas, 400 pounds. In fact, uh, over two and a half tons of silver were given. And you'll notice here that it even says in verse 70, the governor gave to the treasury. So it starts with the leadership on down as well. God knows who's given. He knows what they've given. And it's a, an expression of their worship uh, to the Lord. But what Nehemiah is doing here is using the sacrifice of a past generation to motivate and encourage the people in his time uh, to give. Now, one of the things I've just been stunned by in our church here lately has been the generosity of our people. You all see the building that's going on. I know those of you that have young children, that entrance is closed now and it's going to be really inconvenient for a while. But the giving to our church here in, in just in, in recent months has really been incredible. And I want to thank all of you so much for that because when we talk about in our message this morning, before you go any further, you can't go any further in ministry unless there's adequate support for it. So I don't want you to say, think I'm talking about money this morning because we're short of money or, uh, you know, I'm here trying to beg for that. No, God's people have risen up and helped tremendously. But let me just tell us uh, and encourage all of us this morning to keep it up. What's happening here in our church is incredible, and we're so, so appreciative of that. Let's continue to be a generous church so God's work here can go forward. There's an old story I know I've told before about uh, the Secretary of Treasury under King Louis XIV in France was a man named Etienne de Silhouette. And um, he enjoyed spending public funds, but he didn't spend his own. He lived in a huge mansion, but he bought the, the poorest furniture, the shoddiest carpet, Whereas all the rich people in that day would have beautiful oil paintings, he just had these cheap little outline portraits hanging in his beautiful home. And those became known all in Paris and throughout uh, France as silhouettes. 
just kind of a, a shadow or an outline of what they should be. And all of us want to make sure that in our giving, that our giving is not a silhouette or a shadow of what it should be. But there were generous, sacrificial worshipers like the people 94 years before Nehemiah came and what he's encouraging the people in his day uh, to do. We need sacrificial worship to keep God's work going. So don't let your worship be a shadow or a silhouette of what it should be. Look, there's three things we have to have in our lives and in our ministry here at Faith Bible Church before we can go forward. Uh, There's three essentials, uh, three foundations, three building blocks, if you will. We have to have godly leaders who are faithful and who fear God. We have to have that. We have to have worship. We have to have generous worshipers who've experienced God's grace in their own lives and who sacrificially support the work of God. And we have to have citizenship. We need to know who is a part of God's family. And most importantly, we need to know that we're a part of the family of God through trusting in Jesus Christ. So if you've never done so this morning as we pray here in just a moment, why not trust Jesus Christ and become a part of God's family? And if you, if you know the Lord Jesus and you're not a member here at Faith Bible Church, why not make a decision here this morning to, to lock arms with us and identify with this local community of believers as we go forward uh, to do God's work? We'd love to have you. Uh, next time, we're going to talk about a passage. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I've been excited about it for several weeks. We're going to get into Nehemiah 8, and this chapter really is the pattern for what we do here at Faith Bible Church every Sunday morning. We're going to see that the first thing Nehemiah does to revive the people, to reform them, is he points them to the Word of God. He points them to the Scriptures. So we're going to pick up there uh, next time. I hope you'll join us. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we do come before you this morning, and I pray that every person here uh, can trace their spiritual pedigree back to Jesus, that every one of us here have recognized that we're a sinner, We're separated from you, and we need Jesus to be our Savior. And he's the only one. He's the only way. And we'll trust in him to be our Savior from sin. Father, I thank you for the faithful leaders you've blessed us with here at this church, the men and the women here who who are faithful and who fear God. And Father, I pray that we'll fear God more than many, that we'll fear you to an uncommon measure. And Father, I Thank you for the citizenship that we have here at our church, the the many people who are part of the family of God who love the Lord Jesus. Father, help us to go forward. Help these things in our church to be in place so that we can go forward to do the work that you have for us to do. Father, we pray now for VBS. It's coming up this week, a, a wonderful ministry of our church. And we ask, oh God, that your hand of blessing will rest upon everything that happens here this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me.